Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. They're genuine experts. They really have, you know, a really clever way of, of identifying a niche and really exploiting it to the, to, to the very end. This was a time then when some of them just really got into a kind of a, a whole new genre, so to speak, like, you know, and crossed the line and became full-time criminals. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. They've just been named by Europol as the gang behind a new COVID test scam. But for decades, the Rathkeel Rovers have been finding new ways to make millions with unlikely criminal enterprises, including a lucrative trade in stolen rhino horns. Who are this mobile organised crime group and how are they cashing in on the pandemic? This week, I'm talking to journalist and author Eamon Dillon, who has tracked the Rathkeel Rovers from the gaudy mansions of their spiritual home in Limerick to the underworld of China, where they trade in the most valuable commodity on earth. He tells me how the Rovers have been the scourge of police forces across Europe and how they return to Ireland just once a year to showcase their wealth. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Get! 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 Get!
So, Eamon, what in the name of God is going on there and how did you get out alive? I walked uh, as quickly as I could without panicking. That was um, Richard Kerry O'Brien Sr. Like he, he's, he's one of these figures that has been dominant for the last 20 years that I've been looking at, the, the Rathkill Rovers. He's one of these uh, traders who's been able to work across jurisdictions, like, you know, right across the world, across Europe. Uh, and he's, he's been subject of a number of in, investigations over the, year, over the years. Um, and on that occasion... Uh, I was calling to him to see if he had anything to say about why the Irish Criminal Assets Bureau had seized the car from him at that stage. And he'd also been raided in relation to, uh, by, also by the Criminal Assets Bureau, in, re, in relation to kind of the theft of rhino horns, you know, from museums and other museum artefacts in, in the UK. So he, he wasn't too impressed to see me, which was a bit of a surprise, to be honest, because he had a blog at one stage and... Uh, he was complaining that that I never turned up to actually get his side of the story. So when I did, I don't think he was actually, I suppose, sincere in his in, in his offer to, to put his side of the story across. You were expecting tea and biscuits, and instead you got a string of expletives. I certainly did. It wasn't the most pleasant, but I mean, as you well know, Nicola, it's par for the course when you're working for the Sunday world. You have to wear the old mental welly boots, I think, to, to get out there and do your thing. You certainly have to have a, a bit of a hard skin, all right. So the Rathkeel Rovers have shown up in a Europol report this week. And, you know, interestingly, they're identified as a gang that are behind this scam where you can get a fake COVID cert on a, an app and get through an airport, obviously putting everybody at risk. Countries are shutting their borders and a lot of countries are are now looking for these certificates so they're not letting anybody in who is carrying uh, the, the, the virus with them. So how in the name of God have this organised crime group, mobile organised crime group, as Europol have called them, how have they ended up trying to cash in on a pandemic? I suppose the first thing to understand about, about the Rathke Rovers, or certainly the, the members of the community who would be involved in criminality, is that they're always on the lookout for an opportunity. And, and they never stop. And I mean, it, they just never stop looking for an opportunity. So this is just the latest one. Uh, it, I mean, obviously, it's, it usually it comes from something that they'll often need themselves. So, you know, if they're, they're traveling, they're doing their best to still travel, uh, like all, all through the pandemic. So they would have been looking for ways to get around any restrictions that would have stopped them from going to where they wanted uh, so it's it's only it's just a natural progression. I mean, they're always looking for for the next thing. You know, wh- whether it's it's you know wh- whatever it is, like they, they'll they'll find something. This is just the latest iteration of 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 you know a, a business model. I mean, back in the nineties, it started with you know everything from uh, antiques. You know, went on then to um, selling electrical goods that were were that were sourced in China and sold door to door in the UK and in Ireland. Uh, it's you know, then it was cigarette smuggling for some of them. You know, it was carpets. They were they were making uh, knockoff versions of well-known designer furniture, which again sold door to door. 
And then, of course, more recently, which would have made a lot of headlines, was the activities of the Dead Zoo Gang, where they found themselves a nice little niche with the the, the sale of the rhino horns. But I suppose to, to go back really where it started, um, certainly when 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 I certainly got interested, would have been nearly 20 years ago. Um, and we were looking at some of the, the very wealthy uh, traveler traders because, you know, an important thing to remember is that the traveling community, they're not an, an homogenous group. I mean, you've rich and poor, you've you've people who are involved in crime, people who aren't. Uh, and, and of course, being the Sunday world, we're looking at the ones that were more interesting. And we came across one character. He was his nickname was uh, Sammy Buckshot, and he actually he had a, a an antique shop in Adair, frequented by you know all the, the American tourists that go to the fabulous you know Adair Adair Manor Hotel. Uh, and but this guy, he, he he was ahead of the he was ahead of the curve when the Iron Curtain came down, the Berlin Wall fell. Sammy Buckshot was on the road. And they were looking for antiques that they could pick up. And, of course, people in Eastern Europe were ready for any kind of, you know, foreign currency uh, to, to make a quick book. And they did very well. So, obviously, then, because of the, the way they work, you know, once somebody has a successful business model, the other guys then would, would cotton on and the market eventually gets crowded. But, um, I mean, there was one, I remember at the time, ringing around and trying to talk to different antique dealers saying, do you know this guy? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'd say, I'm from the Sunday world. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know who you're talking about. And now this includes a very well-known famous auction house based in London, where I rang them and asked them about uh, Mr. Quilligan, which is his real name. And uh, I, I uh, and they said, oh, yeah, certainly we'll come back to you. You know, no problem. I told them I was writing a profile. And then the, the, eventually the, the press officer came back to me to say that, I'm sorry, it was a mistake. I thought we were talking about someone else. So... This is a guy, one, so one, one person who did speak to me was saying that, you know, Sammy Buckshot could stand at the, the hall, could stand at the front door and he, he could look at a painting hanging sideways on your hall and he'd work out how much it was worth. And he'd offer you then about, you know, at least 5% of what it was truly worth. And the pressure will come on to sell it. So he, he was genuinely, like some of them, they're genuine experts. They really have, you know, a, a really clever way of, of identifying a niche and really exploiting it to, to, to the very end. And, and there was another great story uh, about, about Sammy Buckshot, I was told, where uh, it was an old country guard, a sergeant in a border county. Uh, so, suddenly it was a knock on his door, and it was Sammy Buckshot again asking him, look, I have this table. He says, can you hang on to it for me? I'm a bit worried someone might try and steal it. I have to go up north, he said. And he says, okay, fair enough. And he knew him at the time. Thought nothing of it. Thought he was a genuine, you know, antique dealer. Uh, but in the meantime, he decided he'd price it and just see what it was worth. Now, remembering this is like in the early early nineties, it was he, he got a quote for it, and it was uh, twenty thousand euro. And I mean, the likes I didn't know there was such things as, as a twenty thousand euro coffee table, but there are. And and the likes of Sammy Buckshot and Richard Kerry O'Brien, who you heard at the start, were actually very clever and and very good and adept at finding these pieces. So they were. More opportunists than anything, Eamon, were they? I mean, they were basically preying on maybe the mised, the the uneducated, shall we say? They were they were kind of going in, seeing a valuable item, and offering a small amount of money for it in the hope that they could get out. Well, I mean, look, that's a business model that's used in in every business. Like you, you know, it's arbitrage. You, like you, you you buy cheap and you sell dear. And that, that's how you make a profit. Uh, like, and then, of course, I'm sure that some of them, like I, I know for a fact as I've spoken to them, there are legitimate business people from the traveling community in Rathkeel. There's one guy I spoke to in the past and 
he he travels, you know, kind of these 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 kind of you know home and wear type festivals or, or, or exhibitions, and used to travel France and the UK and Ireland. I think the only close to to those kind of festivals that we had in Ireland would have been the Bloom Festival, but they were well known. You know, it was a, it was a great circuit. So here was a guy who was able to you know enjoy the the travel lifestyle of moving around and had a legitimate business. Uh, but unfortunately for him, then the reputation of sometimes once people heard he was from Rathkeel, he'd find it was difficult to do business with them, partly because the reputation of of kind of the rogue element in the community, uh, you know, was you know kind of uh, I suppose muddied the waters a bit. But I, I suppose the point is is that they're they're, they're just so good at, at, at spotting a niche and moving into it. Um, the, the likes of, uh, of say, there would have been another character, um, and I mention now because his sons and other members of his family, uh, like, come up later in 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 the, in the, the Rathkeel story, and Michael Laban Slattery, and like he, he's a guy again, you know, who's been very good at uh, you know making money over the years, uh, you know, between say buying vintage cars is one of the areas they got into, um, and, and again. Uh, maybe ten or twelve years ago, he, he ran into trouble with a uh, an antique dealer in Baltimore in in the US. There was a guy called EA Mack, and he was a very interesting character to talk to. This guy EA Mack, Elmer Mack, and he had a he, he had this another twenty eight thousand dollar card table, which disappeared one time after uh, uh, Slattery had or some of his relatives had visited, and it set off this long running kind of legal battle. Which eventually, I think, ended up with with Elmer Mack getting a million dollar lien against members of of uh, Slattery's family and against the lawyers who represented him. Like he was really dogged and, and really stuck with it. But again, like you know, he, here's a guy you know who you know from Rathkeel, and and he, he's working like the east coast of America, looking for you know trawling for um, antiques and and by all accounts, sending back you know uh, you know container loads of goods then you know back to Europe for resale you know, to to whoever. So for those who don't know Rathkeel, because um, certainly um, we do, you have been down more frequently than I have, but I've certainly had a little snoop there one Christmas. Just explain it, because it's quite an extraordinary little village in, in near to Adair, which is often the the spot where a lot of wealthy American tourists will 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 uh, come for holidays and a gorgeous little village Rathkeel itself is a is a lovely place but just describe the town and what what sets it aside from from many other places in Ireland yes yeah, so, well I suppose Rathkeel would have been one time you know it, was, it would have been kind of a you know a market town like there's still a big cattle mart there and so it would have been quite wealthy and I suppose as a lot of those market towns over the years throughout the Irish Midlands and you know in, in the west they've declined and declined and I suppose the, the property would have been relatively cheap. And what, what happened then is that a number of the, the, the kind of the, the traveller traders in the travelling community, you know, bought up land and they bought up houses there uh, to the point now where, you know, they make up about half the population of 3,000 or so people during the year. And then, you know, at Christmas time, you know, members of the clans all gather, they come back from wherever they are in the world and they can treble the population of, of, the, of the village. And as you, like there's some, there's some huge houses that have been built there. You know, stone clad or nate iron gates. You go down at Christmas. Um, some of the years in the past, you, you know, you're talking about, you know, some of the the high end Mercedes worth two hundred thousand. I think the first time, 
uh, the first time I saw a Porsche Panama in Ireland was in Rathkeel on at, at Christmas. Um, funnily enough, that that same car was so distinctive. I noticed it then on a French television report the following Easter, when there was a, a large invasion of uh, travelers unexpectedly in I think uh, Lourdes it was, but it, which again goes to show how, how these guys get around. But I mean, it, it is a sight to behold. I mean, to the uninitiated, you're kind of you're just wondering, you know, you know, where does it all come from? And I mean, you, you know, they, they, they put a lot of money into the houses um, and there is a lot of money sloshing around. Uh, and, and at that time, it would have been the guys, would have, the bulk of the money would have come from the tarmacking work that these crews were doing. And again, that was right across Europe. And again, like if, if you use corporate speak, I mean, these guys have a, developed, uh, you know, a business model that is culturally blind I mean, you have 16-year-olds who can sell you tarmac in Swedish. They can do it in Polish, Italian, French, German, whatever. I'm sure they can do it in Croatian and Slovenian if they had to. Like, they figure it out. They're, they're, um, they're amazingly resourceful in that regard. And, of course, because they don't play by the rules and avoid taxes and avoid the authorities, you know, it's a, it's a fairly lean economic model to operate on. So the tarmacking, which kind of came along shortly after that whole antiques bit, I mean, I personally, I could be wrong here, but am I looking at the antiques be- being that they were really savvy businessmen that were opportunistic? The tarmac academy was more criminal because they were offering, they were taking large amounts of money for jobs they knew were not going to be, um, you know, weren't going to be well done or, or, or valued correctly. And they were often sort of using intimidation when they were setting a price and collecting money for a job that was half done or badly done. Yeah, I mean, look, it follows a really kind of established modus operandi where, you know, a cold caller knocks up to the householder. And again, as I said, this can be in Swedish or Polish or whatever. And they'll knock up and they'll say, we have a tarmac crew, you know, we're working on a motorway project in the area. We have a load of asphalt left over, tarmac. We can come and do it. The boys are finished at six o'clock, but the only problem is they want to go for a few pints and they'll have to go 50 miles down the road to where we can actually dump this tarmac. Otherwise, it'll seize up the, the truck, blah, blah, blah. So we can put it down in your driveway now for next to nothing. What do you think? And we'll just measure it out and we'll pay the guys just for the labor. And they knock on, like, they're, they're, they're prolific. Like, they will knock on doors, knock on doors until, they, you know, you'd say, like, why would anybody do this? But the amount of business they drum up this way is phenomenal. Like over the years, I've spoken to, I've spoken to one or two guys who've been involved in their crews, and one guy was telling me that uh, in in one October, in in I think around, I think it must have been around two thousand and nine, that they made something like, well, he didn't make it, but the boss made. They did jobs worth two hundred thousand euro, and at this time, this is in northern Italy, and he says one day they did seven jobs. So there's no way you can do ten guys or a crew of eight workers can do you know, a tarmac uh, a job on a, on a house and do that seven times in one day. And they were charging, like he says, the lowest they got was uh, 7,000. And I think and something like the highest was kind of in the mid-teens, like 15,000 euro. So in, in a single day, you know, the, the, the boss had, you know, pocketed a, a roll of cash, like 50 grand into his pocket. And, you know, there was amazing kind of, they were just so blasé about it, they'd, they'd stick in an area for three weeks and then they'd move on. Uh, like another one of the, the, the guys, like to, to say, to explain, right, about a, a Rakhil Tarmac crew, what would often work out is you might have, say, a father and a brother or two brothers from the one family. So you'd only have two of them in, say, a 10-man crew, and you'd have one other Irish guy, usually, that they would have picked up, 
you know, some guy, you know, from whatever part of Ireland for has his own issues, wants to go on the road or stays away or or thinks he's getting a, a you know an interesting job. And then the other seven or eight are laborers that could be, you know, anything. I mean, certainly at the time I was looking at looking at it, a lot of them were Eastern European. Now a lot of them are actually illegal immigrants who've come from North Africa. And these guys are, are you know, they're, they're, they really are exploited and, you know, they're, they're worked hard. And often they're left then to carry the can. They'll use their identities to open bank accounts so they can lodge checks from, you know, the clients that they rip off. And, and, and you know, and, and so a lot of these guys just end up being deported or they end up, you, you know, they, they're the guys who end up carrying the can. And that the, 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 the Rathgill traveller kind of who's running it is, you know, if he is caught, usually managed to persuade, like, I'm not the boss, I'm just working here as well which again, you know, it's a, it's a standard practice that seems to work for them. Did you hear stories then over the years about sort of, you know, I mean, I know you have heard how they, when it comes to paying the bill, they can often be very heavy handed with people, especially people who might be making comments about the work or maybe they just haven't done it at all. Yeah, I mean, well, look again, like to go back to the, the start of, of the podcast where you had Kerry O'Brien shouting at me. I mean, you, you know, if you're, you know, a, a an elderly person standing at your door and you have a guy like this and especially like one of their favorite tricks when they'd be in the UK would be saying well we, we're with the IRA we'll get you shot and people would hear an Irish accent and assume my god like the IRA are going to turn up uh, you know and, and they do they bully people like you know they'd have a group and like you know amazingly enough they do they do it and you know where you kind of say like how did they get away with it like you know in places like you know Poland or Eastern Europe and Bulgaria which is where they've worked in Romania and you know, where you'd imagine that there's already some well-established, hard-nosed kind of people knocking around in Italy. And, but they do. And, you know, they, 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 they frighten people, but they, they move quickly. Like, they wouldn't be coming back three days later. Um, and a lot of the time, people kind of know they're getting a deal that they shouldn't. I mean, like, the, the gift of a really good con artist is to kind of give somebody, you know, what they think they want and they know that they're really, it's not really above board. So then they're kind of worried about going to the police or there's enough doubt there that they don't initially go to the police. And like all the tricks that they use then, like they, they'll say, oh, we agreed 90 metres. And they said, no, it was not, you know, we agreed 90 metres. And they said, no, you said 90 feet. And so that would be one trick. And then they'll, be, they, they'll have the old tape measure, that, you know, that has 10 metres cut out of it. Uh, so like they'll measure your... Your, your your ten meter driveway, and all of a sudden it's now it's now twenty five meters long, and they'll show you the tape. Look, it's twenty five meters, and you're kind of going, "That's impossible," uh, you know. And and they literally will put down they'll put down like a thinnest veneer of tar like substance, like it's not even tar, it's not actual tar mac, like you know, it, it, you, you might as well paint your driveway. <laughs> I mean, like some like one guy described it. He said uh, they actually had custom built trucks made, and they had like eight jets like little jets for squirting out the tarmac or the, or the substance. And he said, but the real, he said, you know, the real trucks that do that would have something like 72, like of, of these jets or, you know, or something like that. And then they also claimed that have a, a truck that could do uh, tar and chip, whereas in reality, they have to be two separate vehicles to do the job. So, I mean, like everything, everything is done as a scam. Um, and they do things like they'd spread kind of uh, cement dust over the finished article as if that would, you know, they'd have to say, look, you have to wait till that dries before you can check it out. And they'd even do things like cover over drains and 
And so, I mean, once it dried and you, you turned a car wheel on, it would break up. So, but they were gone. They were long gone at that stage. As was your money and you were left with a bit of a nightmare. Um, around 20, 2009, 2010, they see an opportunity in a really, really strange place where not many criminal gangs have, have tread. But nonetheless, um, they start to see the value of the trade in rhino horns. So rhino horns, um, the crumbling of rhino horns is, is one of the most valuable commodities in the world, is it not? It, look, it, this is just bizarre at the time. I think it was around the end of um, 29 or 2010. Like I, I got a call, was some of the guys are saying, oh, I said, like, we says they're all into the rhino horns now. And I, 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 I said, like, why, why? You know, and they're saying, oh, they're selling them to the Chinese. And that, that just doesn't sound right, you know. And it was literally a couple of months later then, like a notice went out, the National History Museum was warned by the guards in Pier Street, you know, mind out, there's people going to try and steal your, your rhino horns. And all of a sudden, this is a thing. Um, so, you know, we're looking at it and, I mean, you're talking about, it, it, it kind of coincided, I guess, with the growth of the Chinese and Vietnamese middle classes, that their economies had taken off. And obviously, one of the things to show off your fabulous wealth is you have this rhino horn set up like a big parma ham in your in your dining room. So when your guests come, you scrape a little bit off and wish them good health. And it's supposed to do everything from, uh, uh, you know, curing cancer to erectile dysfunction. And at anything between $20,000 to $60,000 a kilo, it's like, you know, it's there's no better show-off way of, of displaying your, 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 your wealth. Um, and like, you know, some of the, the rhino horns that you... Um, that you kind of see on TV, like some of them, they would be at least three kilos. Some of them are four kilos. So a single rhino horn, like, you know, at the top price could be quarter of a million euro. It was just an incredible amount. I mean, there was, the, the, the first then in, in Ireland, there was two of the O'Brien brothers were arrested in Shannon. They had flown from Portugal and they, they had six rhino horns um, in their possession at the time and they were estimated to be worth 500,000 euro. So that was the first indication. They were each fined 500,000 um, 500 euro each and sent on their way. But that was the first indication that there was a real big scale going, a big scale kind of uh, scam going on here. So where where do you go about getting a rhino horn? I mean, the poor rhinos, clearly, but why are these in museums? These They have to be an ancient rhino horn or there is, you know, I don't understand that bit of it. Yeah, well, I suppose there was... Up, up until the rat killers got into the trade, there was only one way of getting them. And that was like to go out with a hunting rifle and take on the rangers and shoot a rhino in, in Botswana or Zimbabwe and, 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 you know, cut it out in the field and ship it off, which is a bit dangerous and a bit messy as far as the, the rat killers would be concerned. So, I mean, they were already well clued into the, to the antiques trade. There's an interesting link there in that there was um, a Chinese-Australian connection and they had been out selling dodgy uh, generators in Australia at the time, which is another anecdote or story. Well, it's not an anecdote, it's another story about them. And, uh, they had, and, and that's where it first apparently had started, where all of a sudden you had these telephone buyers at auctions where there was these antique rhino horn head mounts. So, you know, the, the rhino head um, on a mount that was in demand from designers for hotel lobbies or presumably some people's uh, boutique hotels. And uh, they... they in some Australian um, some Australian auction houses suddenly noticed they had these phone buyers 
who were suddenly, uh, you know, paying four and five times the amount for these for these uh, items, and they couldn't really figure out what was going on. Uh, so it was basically it was the rat killers had figured out, you know, we can't go shooting rhinos, but we can get rhino horns. And the fact that, you know, okay, they were shot 150 years ago by some, you know, colonial clodhopper showing off around, you know, the, 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 in, in darkest Africa and then bringing it home to Czechoslovakia or to, you know, the aristocratic home in South Bavaria or, or Dorset or, you know, and then obviously some of these made their way to Australia at some stage. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, rhino horns that were, you know, possibly 150 years old, if not more. But for all intents and purposes, the same thing, I mean, it's like rhino rhino horns are made from the same material as your hair and your fingernails. That's what it is. I mean, there's no there's no magical medicinal properties, but they're 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 a way of showing off your wealth. And there was a huge demand for them. And the 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 racketers just got in. They got in ahead of everyone on it. I mean, the the only other kind of criminal syndicate that turned up later was some Californian Vietnamese. But the the the, the racketers had were already you know, they were well on the way um, to the point where the people in, in the auction houses and museums were now uh, aware of what was going on. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> there, started, there was a number of thefts uh, from university museums, from these small, time, small town museums from around the place. Um, you know, people have had these, I mean, they were basically curios. I mean, they were of new, no great value, really, apart from, you know, this is something that happens in the, you know, the 1800s and the early 1900s. And you'll actually find, like when you track through where these, these rhino horns started disappearing from, they usually coincided with where the tarmacers had been, you know, at some point. So while you're out tarmacking, they were also keeping an eye out for, for something else. Now, in some cases, you know, it, it may not have been the same people, but there were certainly, the tip-offs were there. Um, and there were, were hiring guys then to carry out these, uh, these snatch and grabs. Some of them were pretty clumsy, but some of them were violent. There was one incident in Paris where, Oh, sorry, it was in Belgium where security guards were, were hit with tear gas. But generally, they were, they were kind of quiet burglaries in, you know, provincial museums where they weren't really going to try and take on anything too arduous in that sense. And presumably where they didn't have too high-spec security because they wouldn't have been otherwise targeted, these museums. There was a middleman, wasn't there? I'll, I'll try this. Donald Chi Chong Wong. Yeah, I mean, that, that was he was the guy arrested with Operation Griffin. Um, that was the UK operation. That kind of came. That really brought up the 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 the, the kind of the rhino scam to an end. I mean, we were calling them the Dead Zoo Gang because the Dead Zoo was the kind of the vernacular nickname for the Natural History Museum in Dublin. The, obviously, the local wags had decided the Dead Zoo was a good name for it. So the Dead Zoo Gang, anyway, were, they kind of came to a halt uh, with that. I mean, they, they had, there was something like 73 million euro worth of uh, ancient Chinese artifacts, as well as rhino horns that had been targeted by the gang. Uh, and there was, there, was, there was 19 people arrested initially, and 14 of them were, were eventually convicted. Uh, so, and, and Donald would have been one of these guys that was arrested as part of it. He was the go-between. He was the guy that was putting the racketers in touch with, you know, the buyers in China or the people who are going to be in touch with the buyers in China and shipping them out. I mean, and, and he wasn't the only one. I mean, there was other people involved, you know, for the rhino horns with connections with Portugal, um, connections with Florida and connections with, with uh, Australia. And, you know, and so again, you know, it's just it just shows you how... Uh, adept that the, the Rathkeelers are when it comes to making connections and looking for a way to get to a buyer so they can sell something. So 73 million, that was the value of, and had they actually stolen that? They had targeted or they had stolen it? 
they, they had stolen it. I mean, and, and now a lot of a lot of the stuff was recovered. It wasn't all recovered, but I mean, it, I, you know, and and I suppose it wasn't the first time it was stolen. You can argue that because this was stuff taken by you know the British colonial British colonial companies, like you know in Victorian times. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, they were they were just. I suppose that it was like some element of you know the gang. They had gotten used to this idea of. You know, hang on a sec. You know, there's a way of getting this stuff easier than than paying for it. And you know, up until then, they wouldn't really have been. They would never have been associated with that kind of, you know, that kind of theft. I mean, you know, they, they would have, you know, a lot of them would have seen themselves more as business people rather than criminals. But I think then for this, this was a time then when some of them just really got into a kind of a, a whole new genre, so to speak, like you know, and crossed the line and became full time criminals. And this is where. You know, Europol's, you know, were introduced to them, so to speak, by the police agencies around around the continent. And they oper- this is when Operation Oakleaf uh, came into effect. That was basically, it was that was used to compile all the various reports about the, the Dead Zoo Gang and the Rathkeel Rovers and to, to kind of, and then suddenly they realised, you know, these scammers turning up, you know, 20 miles outside of Warsaw are the same guys or they're connected to the same guys turning up, you know, 40 miles outside of Barcelona. And in some cases, it was the exact same individuals, uh, you know, and three days apart. The, you, you know, they're just like their their mobility and and their resourcefulness, like is 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 in one sense is to be admired, but it also makes it extremely difficult for for any kind of police force to to track them, especially, you know, up until the rhino horns, they kept everything under the radar. So I mean, why would you put like you know national or international resources into finding somebody who who stole, you know, seven grand off a, a gullible householder? But then when you multiply that gullible householder by 100, all of a sudden, yes, it is something that's more, you know, that, that's more worthwhile in getting into. And I think it took a while. It took, you know, it, it took the best part of 10 years, I think, before police forces across, across Europe, across, you know, across the States, you know, got into it and started, you know, really making an effort to, to, to track them down. I've no doubt they really tested the metal of Europol because isn't that what that organisation is all about? It's about sharing intelligence between the different countries that are, you know, involved with it. And uh, in one way, they probably, you know, can't stand the Rathkeel Rovers, but in another way, maybe they secretly sort of like the idea that they've actually properly tested how they how they work. Um, the King of Denmark... Just remind me, because I know we've spoken before. Was it the King of Denmark that they had uh, hustled yeah, with? Is, I think in Cahors in France, it was a, a property where they got their tarmacking done. So, But it was owned by the King of Denmark. So it was just one of dozens and dozens of people. I mean, it, it just, like, sometimes you get a whole summer where you don't hear about where the tarmackers are. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there'll be a spate of it. Like, you know, like the time in, it was in Bergamo, or there'll be you know, some part near Dusseldorf. I mean, in, in Germany, they're known as Tierlochen. Asphaltari Irlandes in Italian. Uh, the, you know, the, the French is the Nomad Irlande. Or, you know, there's just so many. Mm-hmm. There's, there's like, I, I just got used to, to figuring out what's the phrase to Google to find out, you know, where they've been. I mean, like, I mean, I think in just a month ago, I think the Dutch police put, put out, um, you know, a press release saying, asking householders to be careful of people with Irish accents calling on the door trying to sell electrical goods. So guess who that was? You know, I mean, like there's no, there's no doubt. Who it was. I've, I've noticed there amongst those jailed um, for that rhino horn and for that 73 million operation that the UK police targeted them with. 
there was a number of addresses in Smithy Fen, which was a large traveller settlement site in the UK where there was a lot of trouble. Were they involved in that? And that was to do with kind of settling on private land and then maybe refusing to move off. Yeah, I mean, well, Smithy Fen is in, in it's Cottenham in Cambridgeshire. And then they had another uh, place in Craze Hill uh, and that's in Basildon. And these are two huge sites. And we actually, some of our colleagues would have gone out to visit those places at the time. It, it, like, it's, it's, it, it, like, it was a technique that the rat killers were doing because unlike other travellers, they had a lot of resources. And they did one, I think that the first one they did in Ireland would have been in about 2004. They just, they bought an agricultural field in, in County Kildare and then just put down hard, hard scrabble, you know, put down, uh, you know, a flooring basically or put down a hard surface so that they could bring caravans in. And then they're even selling them amongst each other. And, and, and you know, the, the, that would have been a small enough. Now, we actually hired a, a, we hired an aircraft that time, we took pictures from above, and th- there was maybe only 15 or 16 kind of family compounds in it, but you could see the furniture that they had bought in was all still vacuum-packed and all the rest. But then uh, Cottenham and Cambridgeshire and then Craze Hill would have been, you know, uh, they would have been 10 times the size of, of Monaster Evan. And these are what they were referred to as come-and-go places, and you basically you'll find that it's it's almost on a direct line between Rathkeel and the ferry ports to Europe. So these are places. They're other places in Wolverhampton. They have a lot of property there, and you know they just they would have taken over kind of spots uh, and and kind of they would have used whatever legislation they could. Um, you know I think in the UK there was there was a kind of a I think there was actually a campaign. There was the the campaign for real Middle England. I think and there's a, a guy called uh, Terry Brownbill who brought over a delegation to Rathkeels to what they thought would be to confront the people that were ruining their nice, tidy little town, only to find pretty much the same thing. And were a little disappointed that there wasn't some evil kind of centre that they could have a go at. Uh, but look, it was a successful technique. Um, and then I think it was around 2008, 2009 or 10, geez, I can't remember exactly, it, it, it really came to a head where there was there was going to be this big showdown between the police and the council in in Basildon, uh, because I think half of the site was on was on parkland. It wasn't privately owned, and the the council had gone through all the hoops. They had set aside something like fifteen million in police fees so that they could clear the site. People were saying we're not going to go. Um, you had all the, the you know a lot of activists had put up scaffolding and all the rest and handcuffed themselves to it, and then on the day. Basically, all the travellers had already left, and the only people left were the, the activists who weren't travellers fighting on their behalf. But the Rakhilers had disappeared. Uh, and it, they were just, it, it's kind of, you, you know, it's like, it like there was definitely elements of people hiding behind the travel lifestyle and hiding behind, you know, accusations of being treated differently. And certainly, there was a guy called Richie Sheridan, uh, Richard Sheridan, who is, uh, he'd be a nephew of the gentleman that we played at the very start of the podcast. And he was on the UK Gypsy Council at the time. And he was the guy who emerged as the spokesperson, you know, uh, for the people living at the site on Craze Hill. Uh, And, you know, I mean, he he was talking about, you know, he he was talking about the human rights and all the rest. And it sounded, you know, fairly impressive. But this guy had his own properties elsewhere. I mean, there there really were, you wonder actually why they they bothered putting up the fight they did. Because I think Australia Sky News were involved um, I was getting calls from, you know, the BBC, from the UK, sorry, US uh, TV stations. Uh, I think on the morning of the eviction, it was it was broadcast live on Sky Television. 
Um, it was a bit disappointing in the end, not a whole lot happened. I think there was a, a famous picture of a woman holding up a burning, there was a burning cross in the background and there was this fight for, for traveller rights. But, you know, in reality, it was it was kind of the rogue traveller traders were kind of, I think, taking the mickey out of the authorities a little bit and, and in that case. And they moved on, of course, then, as we heard, to cashing in on COVID. I mean, there's not too many groupings, obviously, uh, certainly been named yet for doing that. There are lots of suspicions that there are criminal gangs going to get involved in the uh, in uh, fake vaccines and stuff. But this is the first Europol report that's actually named an organised crime group. And it's our Rath Keelers. So do you know much about this scam, what they're at? Not yet. <laughs> I'm only just really looking into it now. I mean... Look, I mean, it's just the latest iteration of, you know, a way from making money. And no doubt it's because they probably need them. them they need these certs themselves to get around because, you know, if, you're, if your business model is staying on the move, you can't afford to do 14 days of, of quarantine every time you cross a border. I mean, you're talking about people who might cross three or four borders in a single day. So that just doesn't really work for them. So I've no doubt this is where it came from. It came from, you know, a position of need and then... Once they have something that's valuable, they'll clone it, copy it, and sell it on. And you know, unfortunately for them, I mean, what they do is 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 they're usually so prolific, and they just repeat and repeat and repeat. It eventually draws attention. And it's not like in the past when they would get away with this, or they it would just be seen as a one-off. Now a lot of these individuals are known. So once they're from one of these families, they kind of have an idea that well, if this guy has it, you know, we're pretty sure that at least another twenty-five or six do. On this side, so you'll probably you'll probably find it proliferates once one of them you know once one of them starts making money out of it or is all of a sudden is able to move around freely. So I mean, I think that's I think that's where that's coming from. It's going to be interesting to see how it how it plays out. Finally, Eamon, is there any idea um, how many of them there are? You know, we talk about the Rathkeel Rovers, but how many of them are there? And is there any sort of an idea of what sort of wealth they might have? Well. There was a story uh, in the first book I did, The Outsiders, I wrote that their estimated wealth was between 200 million and 500 million. And that was in 2006. And they joked in the Black Lion pub, which at the time was a pub in Rathkeel owned by a traveller lady who leased it out to whoever wanted to run it. And the joke was that I wildly underestimated how much they were worth and they would complain bitterly. Um, if I suggested that one of them was a millionaire and they'd say, I'm more than that, I'm more than one. So, like, again, you don't know how much of this is bravado, how much of it is truth. But, I mean, you know, when, when you look at these tarmac crews, at one stage we figured there was maybe 25 of these tarmac crews going. And you'd have, you know, a really a really good one or a lucky one could be making 50 grand in a day. You know, maybe, you know, that might be a one-off uh, but it's it's not not necessarily a one-off, and you can certainly be sure. You know, at the very minimum, you've twenty-five crews making two hundred thousand a month. So, you know, do the sums. Like you know, it's you know, and they're constantly at it. I mean, even like there were some of them. It's as much luck as well. Uh, some of them before two thousand, they were worried about the, the the changeover to the euro currency, and they had a lot of they had a lot of uh, sterling, and so they bought property, and then sterling went down, and then as well as that property went up. So the guys who already had money, you know, in the course of three or four years, you know, absolutely quadrupled the resources, their savings, what they had. So they were lucky in that sense. And they reinvested in, you know, into, into new ideas, like, you know, which again, like was, you know, for instance, buying cigarettes on the continent and selling them all over England. And again, they made millions in that. So, you know, the, 
how much they're worth is, is anyone's guess. You know, a, a minimum of 25 crews. Is it two or three recruiters in each one staffed up by foreign nationals? We don't know. Like, you know, so. One, one thing we do know is that the Criminal Assets Bureau here have them under investigation and are trying to identify any assets they have in this country. And we also know they're probably doing a good job to keep the luxury car trade going. So uh, at least they at least they're spending it. They're putting it back into the economy. Uh, Eamon Dillon, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.